0: grateful to um, continue our series, The Journey of the Bible. If I remember correctly, this is going to be our next to the last (coughs) message in this series. And so it is, um, it's fitting then that the title of the sermon today is called The End of the World, The End of the World. Uh, But Before we get started this morning, I'd like for us to. Pray together one more time. Lord, I just thank you for this opportunity to gather together with your people and to hear from you. Pray, Father, now you'd open up your hearts to, our hearts to hear, believe, trust, obey all that you have written. Your Apostle Paul commanded us to encourage one another with these words, these words of the coming of Christ and of the end of the world. And I pray indeed, Lord, our hearts would be encouraged to know that we have a hope that nothing in this world can take away, but we have the sure guarantee of resurrection from the dead, judgment of the world, and the life everlasting. And for these things, Lord, we give you praise, and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Um, what I want you to think about this morning is how the end uh, makes all the difference. What we believe about our eternal destiny really does make a difference in how we think about and how we live our lives today. It's, it's, a, it's a core component of one's world view um, uh, someone has said that someone's worldview is comprised up of four different things. Our origin, our morality, our meaning, and our destiny. So what you believe about how we got here, what you believe about what's right and wrong, what you believe about the meaning of life, and what you believe about what will happen to us in the end of all things, all those things are intimately tied together, and they all affect the way that you look at the world. For example... An atheist, a famous atheist, has once said that um, uh, the whole the whole universe is just nothing but cold, pitiless indifference. And that is, if atheism is true, then scientifically, what would happen is that in the in the eternal ages to come, all the stars would burn out. Everything in the universe would grow to a uniform cold, and we would just be dead space forever. Uh, Have a good life. (laughs) You see, if that's true, then of course that means a lot, doesn't it? It means that life ultimately has no meaning because we got here by accident, we're going to go into nothingness forever, and that's it, and that's the end. And so our little blip of life in this entire span of of, uh, the course of history is just really it's meaningless. It doesn't matter. It's all an illusion, really. Any sense of meaning is an illusion. But you see, Christianity tells a totally different story about the world. A story that actually gives our lives deep and profound meaning that I think we innately know to be true. And that is that we were created intentionally on purpose by an almighty wise God. That he made us to know him, to live for him, to glorify and honor him and to find our greatest joy, delight and happiness in him. And not only that, but we were made to live forever in a world free from sin. But, of course, that is not the case. So God is working and has been working, as we've been talking about, to make all things new. And one day, history as we know it will indeed come to an end. And God, through Christ, will make all things new. And that's what we're going to talk about just a little bit this morning. From First Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. And now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as a woman, as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light. so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. The Word of God. You may be seated. So, I wanted to read that passage in its fullness, but we're actually not going to talk about that passage until the end of the sermon. What I want to do is to give a little bit more background first, about and kind of really reiterate the story that we've been talking about, This entire past year. So the first point we're going to see is this. Is that in the end. God will restore all things. In the end God will restore all things. So I just want to review the story very briefly for all of us. So we can connect the dots here. In Genesis 128 it says. God blessed them and God said to them. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea. And over the birds of the heavens. And over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's God when he created man. We've said before he created we were created by God for God to fill the earth to populate the earth to be his image bearers and to he says to have dominion over the earth. That is in a sense we were to rule the earth, we were to create culture and develop government and society that that uh, in righteousness and in holiness and integrity so that we ruled the earth with God's care and with God's love and with God's wisdom. And as his image bearers we were just supposed to spread and fill over all the earth, being really being kings and lords underneath the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But as we know, is that sin broke all of this. It broke it all because of our rebellion against God. Adam and Eve disobeyed Him. And so rather than trusting God, they trusted the devil. They trusted their own desires over and above the Word of God. They put their opinions above God's Word. They rebelled against their Maker. And sin entered into the world, and with sin came death and brokenness and disease and all the things that plague our world to that. But, as we have said so often, in Genesis 3.15, there's this great promise where God tells the devil, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." So, in the very beginning, God made a promise to the devil that one day an offspring of the woman, that is a human being, would come who would, it says, the devil would strike his heel, but he would bruise his his head, strike his head. So, God is prophesying of this future promised man who would do what? Who would be struck by the devil, but at the same time, he would grind the devil's head into the dirt. He would undo the devil. And his works. In other words, he would make right what the devil and sin made wrong. That's the promise in the very beginning. So the whole Bible is really God's story of us waiting for that promised man, of us looking for the one, the offspring of woman who would come, who would restore the world and to make things right the way it should be. And so what we see then throughout the Bible is that we're tracing, we're tracing the bloodline then of the promise. We're looking for the child of the promise. And and that's really what the whole Old Testament is about. He, he, and, and so as we follow it, we see that we're following the line of the promise. And so it picks up, for example, in, w- with the story of Abraham. In Genesis twelve two and 3, it says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you... All the families of the earth will be blessed. So think, so God is telling this to Abraham. And so it becomes clear in the context of the storyline that it's through Abraham's family that this promised one will come. Because it's through Abraham, God says, that he's going to bless the whole earth. What does that mean? It means make things right again to, fi- to fix the mess that's, that we have made of the world in our sin. He's going to fix it. And here God says, "Through the family of Abraham." And so the whole story of Israel is God uh, working to bring about this promise, to fulfill this promise. And it's only over time, through what we call progressive revelation, that the, that the picture becomes clear. In other words, in other words, the whole scripture story is just is like this. It's building and it's building as we draw nearer and nearer to the climax of human history where the promise one comes. And so, for example, later in Israel's history, God chooses David over and against Saul to be his king. David is the youngest of his brothers. And so, but, but God chooses David and then he makes David a promise in 2 Samuel 7. He says, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, same word, after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in the immediate context, it's clear he's talking about Solomon, but then in another sense, you know, Solomon didn't live forever. So it's clear that at the same time, he's talking about somebody greater than Solomon, A a descendant this time, not just of Abraham, but now of David, who will be what? Who will be the king, who will be the eternal king, right? Who will be what Adam and Eve are supposed to be. By what? Exercising his dominion over all the earth. We're waiting for this king, we're waiting for this king to come, who will fulfill what humanity was made to do in the first place, and who will right all the wrongs that sin has done. And so as we talked about, as we journey through the Bible, it's abundantly clear that Jesus Christ is that promised man, that promised offspring of God. Born of a virgin 2,000 years ago, the promised uh, descendant of woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the promised child of Abraham who would be the blessing of the nations, the promised descendant of David who will sit on his throne And reign over the earth forever has come. His name is Jesus Christ. The angel appeared to Mary. And he told Mary this in Luke chapter 1 verse 32. He says, your child will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And therefore it's no accident that by the time you get to the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples this before he ascends into heaven. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What does it mean? It means Jesus is the boss. It means Jesus is. Is the king. It means there was no one who exists who has greater authority than him. It's ironic, isn't it, that the most powerful man who ever lived secured his power by dying on the cross. But he died on the cross and he conquered death, hell, and the grave. And now he's risen from the dead and everything, the whole world, belongs to him. And he's the king. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty At this moment, ruling and reigning over the earth. He is the one who was struck on the heel by Satan, but who crushed Satan's head. Because the word uh, word, uh, Satan means adversary, the word devil means accuser. The only power that Satan had over us is to rightly accuse us of our sin before God. But guess what? Forgiven sin, the devil has no power over. So if in Christ your sin is forgiven, the devil has nothing to accuse you of. The devil has lost his power. And what does this have to do with the end of the world? Well, it means that Jesus Christ is the one through whom the restoration of the world will be accomplished. And in in fact, the restoration of the world has already begun through through what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Everywhere where someone repents and believes on the Lord Jesus Christ and is filled with the Holy Spirit and is now submitted to God through Christ... Christ now reigns in their heart. He now reigns in their life. And wherever that person lives, there the kingdom of God is. And wherever those people gather together in local churches, there the kingdom of God is. And the kingdom of God is spreading. It's spreading over the whole world. There are billions of Christians on the earth. 2,000 years later... Because his disciples and their disciples and their disciples obeyed Christ's command to preach the gospel. And wherever the gospel has been preached, not everyone, but some people have been saved. And they've been born again by the Spirit of the living God. And they now submit to God and enter into his kingdom. And now and that kingdom has spread throughout the whole earth. Today, to this very day, there are people gathered who have already gathered or will gather this very Lord's Day who look totally different from us, who speak totally different language than us, but they'll open this same book that we're reading today and they'll worship Jesus Christ as the Most High God. Jesus is the King and His kingdom is already here and it's growing, but one day His kingdom will come in its fullness. You see, Jesus is the king, but not many people today acknowledge him as the king. But guess what? One day when he comes back, you won't have a choice. When he comes back, he will be, manifestly be the king. Because the Bible says every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. The angels are going to bow the knee to Jesus Christ, and so will you one day. He is the king, and he will one day bring in the end of the world. So, and in so doing, he's going to restore us fully, finally, back to who we were made to be. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So, in the end, God will restore the world. Number two, in the end, God will judge the world and save his people. In the end, God will judge the world and save his people. So, what what I want to do now is I'm going to read you uh, some lengthy portions of Scripture. Because what I want you to do is I want you to see this from the Old Testament. This is just not a New Testament teaching. The Jews anticipated what they called, what was commonly called in the Old Testament, the Day of the Lord. They called it the Day of the Lord. So what, was, what is this Day of the Lord, and what does it, it mean? The, the prophets talked about the Day of the Lord in, in numerous places. I'm just going to read you a few passages. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Well, for the Day of the Lord is near, As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble, and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pains and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. That's where Paul gets his language of like a woman in labor. He says, they will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless." And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And finally, in Malachi verse four, uh, chapter 4 verse 1, these are the last verses, the last verses of the Old Testament. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when the, all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, uh, the day of the Lord. The Old Testament clearly anticipates it, and it's very fascinating because um, when it talks about the day of the Lord, it is a day clearly in the prophets, a day of both judgment of God's enemies, and of salvation for God's people. So it's a it's a it's a dual day. And of course, if you think about it carefully, the two really go together. Uh, when David, for example, in the Psalms, when he when he wrote Psalms and he said things like, Save me, O God, what well, what was he praying for? Well, literally David was being chased by people trying to kill him. So when he said, Save me, David was not praying for Spiritual salvation, he was praying for literal salvation from what? From his enemies. Uh, Now, of course, uh, James now says, in the book of James, when we preach to James, James says, now to be friends with the world is to be enemies of God. So in other words, everyone who does not know him, who does not give honor to him and thanks to him, who loves his creation more than the one who created it, and who shake their tiny little fists up at heaven and say, I, you know, I'm just going to do me, God. Thanks, but no thanks. Everyone who does that, they are, they are, in a very real sense, an enemy of God. And God has spoken of this day for a very long time. A day of, the, the, of salvation for his people through the judgment of his enemies. Because when God judges his enemies, then he's delivering his people from their enemies. We see this clearly in Revelation chapter 6. Verse 9 and following, he says, When I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You see, I believe that as the end nears, there will be a great persecution of Christians. And because our kingdom is not of this world, we, like Jesus, will not gather up some kind of army to fight. But we will overcome, the book John says in Revelation, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. That is, that we will be faithful and maintain the gospel witness unto death. Because we don't avenge our enemies, God does. So we are faithful to our Christ in the spite of the face of persecution, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming. When all sin will be punished. You see, sin's always going to be punished. If you repent of your sins and believe in Christ, God will punish your sin in Christ. Has punished your sin in Christ. But if you don't let Christ pay for your sins, then you'll have to. That's how it works. Sin will be punished. evil will be dealt with. Fully and finally, everyone who did things that they think, I got away with it. You didn't get away with it. A day of reckoning is coming for the whole world when Jesus Christ comes. And it is the day of the Lord. And we know that it is at Christ's coming that will happen because Paul says it. And We read it in 1 Thessalonians 5.2. It says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he, he clearly is identifying the second coming of Christ with the eschatological or the end times day of the Lord that was prophesied about in the Old Testament where we read those passages. He's, he's saying this the same day. The second coming of Christ is the day of the Lord, the day when God will judge the world. Jesus himself said this would happen, Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's sure. It's guaranteed. It will happen. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming and he's going to judge the world when he does. So, uh, in the end, Jesus is going to judge the world and save his people. Next, number three, in the end, we'll be raised to be with Christ. In the end, we'll be raised to be with Christ. And so what I want to do in these final two points is I want to briefly now go back to the passage we read at the beginning and just walk through them. So you might want to have your Bible open. You do want to have your Bible open uh, to that passage as we walk through it. So 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. In this passage, what Paul is writing to, he's writing to Thessalonians. If you remember, Thessalonica was one of the cities he got ran out of pretty quickly. So he didn't have a lot of opportunity to teach them. And the early church is very clear. The early church believed, as Jesus taught them to, that the end could be at any moment. It could be at any moment. So they, in many ways, they had that holy expectation that we're supposed to have, that Christ's coming is soon, and it could be any moment. It could be today. We might, we might be lifted up. The sky might split open before I finish this sermon. Bless God. Okay? And the, some of the believers among the Thessalonians had died, and they were, a little, they were uninformed. They were afraid. Oh, no, Jesus hasn't come back yet. What happens to our friends who died? They died before Christ came back. Are they lost? Is there no hope for them? And Paul says, no, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. that That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. In other words, for those who pass away who are in Christ, we don't have to grieve as others do. It doesn't mean you don't grieve, but you don't grieve as those who have no hope. Because those who die in Christ, it's not the end. It's not the end for them. We have resurrection hope. And so we don't grieve as those who have no hope. Asleep there, he says, those who are asleep. Asleep is just it's just a euphemism for dead, of course, because in Christ, I mean, I mean, yes, people die, but Paul calls it sleep because it's not the end. Really, it's just the beginning. And then in verse 14, it says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. In other words, what Paul is saying is that Christ has risen from the dead. And because Christ has risen from the dead... Therefore, we don't lose hope over our faithful, believing loved ones who have died. Why? Because since Christ has been risen from the dead, they too will rise from the dead. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. And so we don't lose hope because Jesus is alive, because Paul said Jesus must be first. Jesus, in Colossians 1, Paul said he's the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Jesus is the first. And everything, the first fruits of those, he's the first one to receive a glorified body that can never grow old or get sick or die again. Jesus now sits, stands in heaven with a glorified physical body. And one day at his return, he will raise those who have died in him. And they too will receive a glorified physical body, never to die again. And then in verse 15, it says, for this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So what Paul is saying is that we don't, have to be, we don't have to be concerned about our loved ones who died in Christ because we won't, don't worry, we won't precede them. Not, it's not going to be different for them than it is for us just because they died before Christ came back. It's going to be the same. When Christ comes, when Christ comes, they too will be raised from the dead and we will be glorified with them. And this was verse 16. For the, angel, for the Lord himself will descend from a heaven with the cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is, it seems to be saying here that uh, we had a good discussion about this in prayer meeting. If you miss prayer meeting, you miss, you miss something really good, you should come to prayer meeting. <laughs> um, I believe what happens when you die is Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when you die, you go to be with Christ in spirit. But see, humans weren't made to, we're not like angels. Humans were made to have physical bodies, not just spirit. We're not just spiritual beings. We're spirit and body. And that's how humans were made. And so, even though when we die we'll be with the we'll go to Christ in our spirit, that's not how we were made to be. We were made to have physical bodies as well. So Christ promises Therefore, that when we die, we go to be with him in spirit, but that's not our eternal state. Our eternal state will happen one day when Christ returns physically, visibly from heaven. And, our, and those who have died in Christ, their spirits will be then reunited with glorified physical bodies. The graves will open up. or Bodies will be reconstituted, remade, and be made new. Spirits will be reunited with their physical bodies. And then those who are alive who are left at Christ's coming... We'll, they'll never die. They'll never die. Immediately, their bodies will be immediately transformed, changed, glorified, and together with those who have been raised from the dead, they'll rise up to meet Christ in the air. That's what he says. It says this will be at the sound. He says what will happen is it will be a cry of command in the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet. Revelation, I think what this means, the cry of command, voice of an archangel, sound of the trumpet. I think what that means, I think quite clearly what Paul intends to communicate by that is that it's going to be be a big shebang. It's going to be very visible. In other words, it's not going to be a secret. When Christ comes back, everybody's going to know it. And that's why Paul says. That's why those texts in the Old Testament says that people on that day, many would, they'll be aghast. They'll be aghast because the one thing that they refuse to believe in is now happening and it's too late. In Revelation 1-7, John says, uh, John saw in his vision, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. (laughs) And all the tribes of the earth were well on account of him. Even so, amen. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty one it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and, and we shall all be changed. So the dead in Christ will rise first. They will receive their glorified bodies. We too will be transformed and glorified if we are alive when Christ comes. And then in verse seventeen, he says, "We who are alive, who will be left, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet them in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord." Uh, there's lots of um, debate about exactly how it works, how the timeline is. You know, I, I'm not trying to open that can of worms, uh, but um, I think it's possible at the second coming when it says to meet. Him uh, in the clouds. There, when it says to meet him in the clouds, the word "to meet" is a word that is only used three times in the New Testament. So we don't have a lot of evidence about precisely what it means. But all, th- but but the other two, the other two of the three times that word is used, it refers to a practice where in ancient times, which is very common, which is when when a noble official entered into a city, the townspeople and the towns officials. Would exit the city and meet the the noble official before they entered the city, and would escort them back in as a as a sign of uh, of honoring them and, and of and of dignifying them. And so that was a common practice in ancient times. It it, it occurs in numerous places in the Bible. For example, Jesus's um, uh, Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. And um, and so I think it's it's it's. And and in the other two places in the New Testament where that word is used, that's what it refers to is, is that practice, meeting them and then bringing them back in. So I think it's likely that we'll rise to meet Christ in the air and escort him back to earth where what? Where he'll set up his throne and judge the world. And so in the end, in the end, we'll be raised to be with Christ. And then finally, number four, and very importantly, in the end, we'll either be ready or we'll be caught off guard. We'll either be ready or we'll be caught off guard. I'll just, I'm going to, I'm just going to read this passage one more time for you. And, and just let it sink in. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So, just a few things that we don't want to miss from this passage. The number one is that Jesus... And Paul said that his coming is going to happen like a thief in the night. Why use that illustration? I think there's probably two reasons. The first reason is that it's unexpected. It's unexpected. Most, the average person doesn't go to sleep thinking someone's going to break into their house that night. But that's the point, isn't it? Most of us don't wake up every day thinking Jesus might come back today. But We should but we should because it could. It could happen. Jesus could come back today. It's going to be unexpected. And not only that, but I think the second reason he uses this illustration is that a thief coming in the night is a, is a surprising action that has serious consequences. Right? I think Jesus' coming is going to be the same way. It's going to be unexpected. It's going to be surprising. And it's going to have very serious consequences. For who? For those who didn't expect it. If you don't expect it, it's going to have very serious consequences. Because, Paul says, people will be saying, verse 3, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So in other words, many people will think that it's just going just fine. And that's the danger, isn't it? That's the danger, is that we think it's going just fine when it's not. When it's not, we forget. And that's the thing. And that's why the, the whole Christian worldview is so different. It's utterly different. And it's because it tells a whole different story about the world. It tells a different end. The things aren't going to end with the stars burning out and a meaningless nothingness forever. But the history is going to end when the sky splits open and the man Jesus Christ descends from heaven. And we have to give an account to him for our sins. And it's going to happen suddenly. And, and for those who are not ready, it's, it'll be like labor pains that hit a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But Paul says, he says, but you are not in darkness. We are not in darkness. None of us should be caught off guard by the second coming of Christ. None of us should be surprised. I remember one time, it sounds kind of silly now, uh, because... That just to be honest with you, there was a season in my life where I was living in some sin. And I was driving down the road. And the sky, I'd never seen the sky look like this before. And this incredibly foreboding feeling just washed over me Oh my gosh, Christ is coming back. And it scared me to death. But see, one day, I think maybe God did that to warn me. But see, one day, there's it's not going to be a warning. It's just going to happen. And it'll be too late. It'll be too late. But we, but that's the difference, right? We should not be caught off guard because we know. We know that he's coming back. Let us not sleep, he says. Let us not sleep. Let us not, let us keep awake and be sober. That means be, that means, that means be thinking clearly, right? Of what? Of eternal realities, Of what Christ has promised. He says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not destined for wrath. We don't have to be afraid of the day of the Lord if we're in Christ. Why? Because it's just our king coming back to set up his kingdom. And guess what? If you belong to Jesus, you're one of his servants. And guess what? That means at his coming, it's not a day of judgment for us, but a day of reward where he sets up his kingdom and then he he gives out all the positions of his kingdom to his faithful servants, to those who have been waiting for him. We have no need to be afraid, but we must be ready and we must be awake. Remember all the stories, the parables Jesus told about a master going away and then coming back in an hour they do not expect, and one servant was beating the other servants and not giving them their food at the proper time? We don't want to be that servant. We want to be the servant where when Christ comes back, We'll, we'll be able to tell him and he'll be able to see, Lord Jesus, I was faithful. Everything you gave to me, I stood it well because I really believed that you would come back at any time. And when you came back, I was right here with the, holding the door for you, ready for you to come. We are not in the darkness, so let us be ready. And then Paul closes while he's just by saying, encourage one another with these words. You see, the Christian life is different because we believe in an eternal hope that goes beyond this world. That means that, that what it does is it takes the razor-sharp, painful edge off of the hurt of this life. Because why? Because we understand that this life is temporary. It's short. There's lots of pain, there's lots of suffering, but you know what? It's not going to last forever. And one day when our Christ comes, he's going to take all that away, we're going to be glorified in bodies and we're going to live in a world free from sin, death, disease, decay, sorrow, crying, pain, tears anymore. And we'll be with him forever. And that changes everything. It changes the way we look at this world. It changes the way we endure pain and loss and suffering. It changes everything because we have a hope that goes beyond this world. Because in the because our life is a vapor, and in the truest sense, when we die, it is really just the beginning. Because, as John Newton said, when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And so my plea this morning is this do you have this hope? This resurrection hope, this kingdom hope that when Christ returns, he's going to welcome you as a citizen of his kingdom and not an an enemy. If you don't have this hope, Jesus offers free and full citizenship into his kingdom. If you will turn from your sins and believe in him and trust in him and follow him. He offers it free. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift that you receive by trusting in Jesus, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that he's coming back. He will welcome you into his forever family. And you won't have to be afraid on that day, but it will be a homecoming for us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this word. Thank you for...